In October 2005, predictions about the potential impact of the bird flu virus were mounting. The spread of the H5N1 virus had put health authorities around the world on high alert. The outbreak of swine flu echoes those times. So what was happening more than three years ago? How were the authorities in this country preparing for a possible flu pandemic? Philippa Tolley investigated. We will be hit by an influenza pandemic. That's the uncompromising view of health experts. There's no doubt about if it will happen, but no one knows when. And the thing was, they came in with terrific temperatures. And if we couldn't get those temperatures down, they dropped suddenly below subnormal, and they started delirium. And once they got very delirious, we just couldn't save them. Most of them, like, they got over it. But if you bled at the nose, if they bled at the nose, they got over it. If they didn't, they went black and that was the finish. It all took them down like, like rats. 40 million people are believed to have died in the last great pandemic in 1918, with more than 8,000 dead in New Zealand alone. Two other pandemics hit in 1957 and 1968. Their impact was significant, but far less deadly. So, are we under a real threat of an imminent pandemic, and how prepared is New Zealand in the event of such a health disaster? It just got so that you had to, if you wanted help, if you didn't feel well, you opened your window and you put a, ra- a white rag out the window, and you unlocked your front door and left a, ha- a white rag on the handle of the door, you see, so that anybody could come in. And when these people who were going around on motorbikes and in cars saw them, you see, they got out to investigate. Mother would come home and she would boil up and make most beautiful vegetable and, and meat soups. And then I would take them in thermos flasks to people who were too ill Uh, to perhaps warm their own food and I wasn't allowed to enter the house I just placed it on the doorstep and then went back to my pony. At the school uh, when we were in class and that uh, some of the uh, my friends whose parents had passed away would all of a sudden uh, start uh, crying and the teacher would have to console them. All of the previous pandemics have in fact had their roots in avian flu. Migrating waterfowl, in particular wild ducks, are a reservoir of avian influenza viruses. The birds are also the most resistant to infection, unlike domestic poultry. The current strain devastates flocks of chickens, and in those cases where humans have been infected, the death rate is around 50%. But to cause a pandemic, the H5N1 virus would have to mutate, to change, to mix, possibly with a flu virus already affecting humans. The Medical Officer of Health in Northland, Dr Jonathan Jarman, explains why the close proximity of humans and birds in Southeast Asia could prove such a dangerous combination. There are a large number of people that live in very close proximity to birds in these countries and also there are other animals such as pigs that all live very closely together and it's a real mixing pot for viruses both for the animal viruses and for the human viruses and there's great potential for the two types of viruses the animal virus and the human virus to mix together and to create a new virus which will have some of the characteristics of the avian influenza virus such as the maybe the high mortality rate, and it will have some of the characteristics of a human influenza virus, which means it can spread easily from person to person. And it will be a new virus, a novel virus, which means no one will have any immunity to it, 
and it can spread very, very quickly around the world. Some attempt to work out different modern scenarios has been done, as Professor John Oxford, a virologist at Queen Mary School of Medicine in London, explains. The analysis from the Centre for Disease Control in, in Atlanta and Georgia, a modern analysis of what could happen in a, in a new pandemic in the 21st century, the worst-case scenario, it could be achieved, as it were. The virus could achieve 50 million deaths. In the best-case scenario, um, maybe a million or two million. In this country, work published in the New Zealand Medical Journal suggests that around 3,700 people could die and up to a million could need medical help. At present, the H5N1 virus is not capable of causing a pandemic because while it does infect people, it's not yet transferring easily from person to person. There have been a few cases, though, as Dick Thompson from the World Health Organization describes. The best documented example of that is in Thailand, where a child became severely ill and was hospitalized. Uh, Later, it was discovered that she did have bird flu. Her mother, who didn't live with the child but worked in a factory in Bangkok, went directly, not to the child's home, but directly to the hospital and cared for uh, her daughter uh, very closely over a number of hours. And the mother subsequently uh, developed uh, bird flu and died. So they didn't have common environmental exposures, and the most likely explanation is that it was passed from the daughter to the mother. The possible pandemic has been described as a potential biological tsunami. But how do you plan for an event, the timing and severity of which is so unpredictable? The challenge posed by such uncertainty was set out in Australia by its health minister, Tony Abbott. If a pandemic doesn't take place, uh, history will wonder, no doubt, why we've spent uh, already some $160 million uh, preparing for one. Uh, If it does take place, people will wonder why why we didn't do uh, much, much more. Um, We don't know... Uh, If a pandemic will happen, we don't know when one might happen, but if one does happen, uh, it will be a public health disaster, the magnitude of which this country has not seen at least since 1919 when we had the last flu pandemic. The World Health Organization is concerned that many countries are not doing enough to prepare themselves for a possible outbreak. New Zealand has had an infectious disease emergency plan in place since 2002 and it was brought into focus by the SARS scare a year later. But detailed planning across government departments has only been underway over the last few months. Those involved have to try to work out how to deal with an unknown number of deaths plus huge social and economic disruption. Once a pandemic is declared, New Zealand's first priority is to keep the virus out of the country. The most likely route for such a disease to enter the country is here at an airport. If the pandemic did break out in Southeast Asia, there are two airports that take direct flights, Christchurch and Auckland. But passengers and aircrew move from one aircraft to another and mingle with other travellers as they arrive and depart from the big regional airports such as Sydney, Bangkok or Singapore. The chances are there will be flights in the air when a pandemic is officially declared and any number could be past the point of return. In managing the border, we have gone through the worst-case um, situation, which might mean 6,000 people arriving at, uh, at Auckland. Um, that then becomes a, a different sort of an issue in terms of managing those people. But if you take 6,000 people as being the worst when uh, government had made the decision to, to shut the, um, the borders, even within that population, it's not going to be 6,000 people that have to be quarantined. There will be a lesser number. 
um, and health officials are starting to do some thinking around what that number is likely to be. Um, so, the, the, But the prime thing is to, is to keep it out. A spokesman for Customs, John Ladd, says while the service manages the borders, it's the government which would make the decision to partially or totally seal off the country. New Zealanders on board any suspect flight will always be allowed back home, but could be quarantined at either a special venue or at home. But as long as none of the passengers or crew are unwell, the possibility of refuelling flights and sending non-residents back to where they came from is also being considered. But for John Ladd, New Zealand's isolation is a significant point in the country's favour. The major advantage that New Zealand has is the fact that it is a... Uh, an island nation and we and we have got that luxury of distance of keeping things out uh, we've got time to respond uh, and as I say that's that's not the luxury that other nations many other nations have the other thing is that, um, that our health um, people have um, been doing a lot of um, good work around updating quarantine regulations anyway and, and that's put us in good stead as well so I think this, this country is as well prepared as any. While the potential for infection to arrive via ship is also of concern, it's thought the risk is significantly less because of the natural delays involved in travel by sea and the requirements in place for ship's masters to notify the authorities of any possible infectious illness on board. Once notified, the Customs Service says it's pretty easy to keep a ship quarantined offshore. But officials from Customs and other agencies are carrying out an exercise in Auckland over the next few days that involves a mock-up of the arrival of 75 illegal and possibly infectious immigrants. The attempt to keep any virus out of the country is of course in the first instance to save lives, but it's also to buy time. It's very unlikely New Zealand could keep a pandemic away from its shores forever, but once the virus is identified, work can begin on a vaccine. And developing a vaccine for a strain of avian flu is a process facing a number of difficulties, as Professor Peter Openshaw of the Imperial College in London, a leading expert on respiratory viruses, explains. We have to wait until the epidemic starts, try to make a judgment about which type of flu is going to spread, and then gear up production very quickly in embryonated hen's eggs in order to grow this virus in, in eggs. Now, the, one of the problems is that bird flu is quite lethal to hen's eggs, being a bird virus, and often kills the egg before really large quantity of virus has been produced. And also it's very hard to grow very lethal viruses in eggs under the sort of normal laboratory conditions. So you really need to gear up your lab to a much higher level of security in order to grow bird flu. But how will New Zealand fare as the world scrabbles to get its hands on vaccine supplies? The Ministry's Director of Public Health, Dr Mark Jacobs, says this country has to compete against those with greater proximity and purchasing power. We're very conscious of, of those potential issues and certainly uh, we're doing everything that we can to try and make sure that New Zealand has very high priority access. Clearly countries that, that host a manufacturer of the vaccine the end of the day are going to have first call on the vaccine in all likelihood. I mean that's been the experience in, in, in previous outbreaks of other things that can be prevented through a vaccine but we need to make sure that New Zealand is as, as close to the top of the list as, as can possibly be. If the virus does get into the country but is confined to one area, the next plan is to attempt to stamp it out.
A tourist, someone here on business or a return traveller could be the one to infect a city or town and through sneezing, coughing and touching the disease could spread. At this level, district health boards take the lead in planning. Kia ora. Uh, hello everyone, thank you for coming tonight. My name is Jonathan Jam. I'm a public health physician for health. In Northland, Dr Jarman has been taking a roadshow around to health professionals in the region, talking about the lessons learnt from the 1918 pandemic and what can be done now. There was considerable surprise about what, was, what actually happened in 1918. And I think the initial reaction is, I don't believe it. I don't believe that sort of thing could happen now. Well, it has happened. And, and of course, what, one of the things we can learn is that our, our ancestors coped with it and we're all here today. So it's not something that we can't prepare for. It's not something that, we, um, that we're totally powerless against. We can actually do things now, such as um, having a kit at home for emergencies. I mean, that's the sort of thing we can do now. Doctors and hospitals could soon be overwhelmed and gathering in waiting rooms could only spread the disease. Staying at home to avoid contact with others is a frontline defence to avoiding infection and schools may be closed and public gatherings of any sort banned. Health advice to individuals might only be available in many instances via phone. Civil defence would provide help at a local level and in Wellington officials have been working out which public facilities they could use to set up local treatment centres. They've also been trying to find supplies of camp beds. The logistics manager for Wellington City Council's Civil Defence Emergency Management Office, Graham Brown, says whatever needs to be done, will be done. There's thousands and thousands of people. We'll just have to keep finding facilities to put them in. It may be hospitals are at bursting point. People can't be at home. They could be anywhere. But, you know, we need to keep them wherever the, the regional public health deem is the best place. He says Wellington has 150 to 200 volunteers trained to help in an emergency, but it could really do with 2,000. Dr Jarman says people need to take the risks posed by a pandemic influenza seriously. We are very relaxed about infectious disease in New Zealand. You um, watch the TV and their ads are about medications that you can take that means that you can go back to work and impress the boss when you're sick. When, in fact, we don't really want that to happen because sick people with infectious diseases are actually going to make their workmates sick and if they go to work. The basics of infectious disease control will be heavily emphasised and this information is already starting to be publicised. In copies of the new yellow pages that are just beginning to be delivered, the Civil Defence page at the back of the book now carries pandemic advice. Pandemic worldwide disease outbreak. Stay home if you are sick, keep away from other people and avoid visitors. Wash and dry your hands before handling food and after coughing, sneezing, using the bathroom, wiping children's noses and when looking after sick people. Use tissues. Graham to Brown says when sneezes, something goes wrong, people's expectations are often out of sync with reality. People always think that somebody else is going to do it. You know, yes, somebody else will come along and fix that for me. That's not the case. The somebody else's them. You know, people need to be prepared for that sort of stuff because that's going to happen. Whether it be a pandemic, an earthquake, a tsunami, flood, storm, it's them that are the responders. There's no mystical army of people coming to help. The agencies involved in managing a health emergency gain extra powers that would let them detain people or restrict their movement. 
The relevant legislation would enable the police to act to help contain an outbreak, as Superintendent Ray Van Bainen explains. In situations where we needed to close some roads or a particular area, then yes, we would we would have the power to close a road or control that road and make sure that uh, medical services were able to get in easily and also people that needed to be evacuated could be controlled and people also kept out or kept in as the case may be. But depending on the size of the problem, we found, for example, in the foot and mouth hoax in Waiheke Island uh, some months ago that there are difficulties around that. I mean, there are huge logistical difficulties and we were fortunate that it was contained on Waiheke Island or the hoax was located there because of the location of the island. But if it was in a suburb of a large metropolitan city, um, that would be much more difficult to try and isolate. No matter how often people are told about the need to be prepared, it seems many fail to heed the warning. In a prediction about Christchurch that no doubt rings true for much of New Zealand, Dr Paul McCormick says the population probably fails to understand the level of responsibility they might have to assume. I'm uh, pretty confident that today the people in Christchurch and throughout New Zealand uh, understand that poorly. And to some extent, uh, you know, that's understandable. We'd expect that people would go through a range of reactions from being cynical and disbelieving to being concerned and then, quite frankly, being anxious and shocked. Uh, So so those are all normal reactions. to something which we're describing clearly, uh, really for the first time over the last uh, period of time, as the risk is becoming more clear to ourselves. Um, We will be uh, asking people to take more responsibility for themselves, first of all in isolation, but then also in actually treating family members uh, who who in fact become unwell. We we may well have to take a role of being a coach for healthcare rather than uh, the only provider of healthcare. While people may be slow to stock up on food or water or to make plans with family and neighbours, many have tried to protect themselves by buying the antiviral drug Tamiflu. Hello, I'm Sue. I'm here to see Dr Gibson at half past ten. Dr Gibson, 10.30. Thank you. Take a seat. Won't be long. Wellington GP Dr Brenda Gibson is happy to prescribe the drug for her patients. Um, and I just thought it would be sensible to have some just to keep in Certainly. stock, just yeah, in case, so really. By and large, I think if people ask for it, I, I'm happy to prescribe it. If they are prepared to pay the cost, which is not insignificant. Mm. Um, Dr Gibson says she's seen demand increase from just the odd prescription last month to a constant flow of requests. But there have been delays in filling prescriptions in some areas. Hi, I've got a prescription here for Tamiflu. I just wonder whether you could tell me what you're doing about that, whether you've got any stocks. Okay, we don't have any stocks at the moment. Um, They're out of stock at the moment. We can't get hold of any. So we're just waiting for the stock to come back. And we've got a long queue. And we've got other scripts um, in a queue. So we're just waiting for the stock to come back. Yeah. The demand has varied from region to region. And not all GPs back the use of the drug or prescribing it ahead of a predicted pandemic. Pegasus in Christchurch is a primary health organisation which covers 245 GPs. The head of the group, Dr Paul McCormick, says most doctors in Pegasus have probably prescribed the drug in response to requests from patients. But he has strong reservations about whether it's the best way forward. My major concern about that is that uh, I don't believe that Tamiflu is the actual uh, correct answer to manage a possible pandemic of uh, avian flu. A packet of Tamiflu is a packet of 10 pills that gives you 10 days of uh, protection against avian flu or 
five days of treatment for uh, avian flu. In, in the um, pandemic scenario, we're probably contemplating avian flu occurring in New Zealand over some many weeks. So the short period of protection that a course of Tamiflu uh, might offer is really quite an illusory protection. But the disquiet over individuals acquiring and administering their own stocks of Tamiflu doesn't end there. I think we've got lots of concerns. There is no evidence that Tamiflu will be effective, though there's some theoretical support for that. We're concerned about uh, people not knowing when and how to use Tamiflu in the event of an avian flu so that people might take it at the first cold they get and it would not be available when we really needed it. Uh, there's a concern about resistance. Um, was, there was a pu- publication out of London the other day saying that as many as 12% of uh, viral respiratory infections are now resistant to Tamiflu, so it's no longer an effective treatment. The Ministry of Health is stockpiling supplies of the drug to help protect frontline workers and treat outbreaks. 700,000 courses are already in the country, and by the end of next month, another 170,000 should arrive, giving enough supplies to treat 21% of the population. The Director of Public Health, Dr Mark Jacobs, says any purchasing by individuals won't impact on the government's plans. At the end of the day, the use of the stockpile has got to be guided by, by sort of rules and processes that are clear and easy to, to follow and to implement. And if we start trying to find out whether a particular individual that might be eligible to get some of a, a course from the national stockpile might also have their own supply, and we try to check that first, well, I just can't see how that system's going to work. I mean, someone's either eligible to get it or they're not. All the extra processes that have to be put in place to find out whether they're one of the 40,000 people in the country that have also got their own supply in the cupboard, I just don't think it's going to be worth the effort in a context where potentially lots and lots of people are going to be sick. You know, there's going to be a lot of clamour for the Tamiflu, there's going to be limited numbers of health workers keeping the system ticking over and all of those sort of practical issues. If a pandemic flu was to break out up and down the country, real challenges would emerge over how to keep the nation going. The Ministry of Economic Development is working to ensure that services such as power, communications, transport, water and waste continue. To a large extent, the work involves contacting all relevant companies to ensure they have contingency plans in place as large numbers of employees fall sick or are needed to care for their families. But it's a bit like putting together a huge and complex jigsaw. Tony Fennick from the Ministry of Economic Development is taking the lead in planning how to keep infrastructure intact. And as he explains, the companies involved have more than their own staff to think about. There are also issues around availability of other supplies uh, to keep infrastructure services flowing. Uh, Supply lines can be quite fragile, so infrastructure providers should be taking an interest in all of the inputs uh, that they uh, have into their processes. And there's another dimension to this as well. Quite often in in infrastructure, you find that the resources to do the job are not all in-house. There's a great deal of subcontracting that goes on. So infrastructure providers need to ensure that the contractors who supply uh, essential maintenance uh, and call centres and things of that nature, that their contractors are in good shape as well. Along with all the other uncertainties, it's difficult to predict how food or electricity supplies, phone or internet services might be affected by changes in demand as people stay at home or as the workforce that keeps it all going is reduced by sickness. But Superintendent Ray Van Banen acknowledges that once supplies and services come under strain, social controls can break down pretty quickly, as became all too evident in New Orleans. Three or four days it went from people who behaved in a fairly civilised and normal manner uh, turned into people who were just out for themselves and, and, 
and just looking for the basics of food, water and shelter. And, uh, and society can break down very, very quickly in, in circumstances like that. And the challenge for us is to make sure that that does not happen, that, that we have sufficient plans in place to deal with things at an early stage so that we're able to prevent things as opposed to try and cure them. But how to prevent lawlessness breaking out and to ensure that support can be provided for the health services if contact with headquarters is lost? In the event of communication breaking down, Superintendent Van Banen says power can be devolved to district level. We've empowered all of our district commanders, uh, and there are 12 police districts throughout the country, to take full control of, of an outbreak in their area in support of the Ministry of Health. And obviously each district commander has the powers to determine on, on what their response will be to the level of pandemic. And it may well be that in one district there is a very large outbreak of, of illnesses and in another there's only a very slight one. And obviously they'll be able to move staff between the two or commit resources as and when required. So uh, we're comfortable that we can deal with it, but yes, it would, it would stretch us. So has enough been done? The Ministry of Economic Development's Tony Fennick believes the planning is improving all the time. There are no absolute guarantees, obviously, um, but I would think that it would be better placed now than it might have been two months ago, and in another two months it will be, be, be better placed again. This is not something that you can turn on and off. This is about continual improvement, really. But no matter how much planning is done, there will be risk, especially for the health workers communities will be relying on. As Christchurch GP Dr Paul McCormick explains, that threat is keenly felt. Frankly, this is scary for us as much as it is for anybody else. Um, at a high level, we expect that uh, a third of our workforce would not be available, primarily because of the um, parenting responsibilities that people would have for their families. Um, some others will, in fact, uh, find this uh, uh, risk too great to, to uh, cope with personally. Um, my p personal response is that uh, the only way that I can reasonably ask primary healthcare workers to step forward is to uh, do all we possibly can to offer them protection that's sensible and effective and to uh, present them with a credible plan that they can see they're part of and agree that that's the best way to respond to this threat. Dr Jacobs says there's no getting round the fact that a significant number of people would fall ill and die. In a bad future pandemic, there are going to be substantial impacts on the country and the best planning in the world won't stop that happening. And so it's something that, that, that we all need to get our heads around that there are going to be big challenges for us as a community when the next pandemic comes, if it's a bad one. But despite grave fears, Northland's Dr Jonathan Jarman is positive about how this country will deal with any future pandemic. We can protect ourselves. Our ancestors did it in 1918 and we can do it now. We've got better technology, we've got much more information, so I believe that we can do it just as well as our ancestors did it. That programme was written and presented by Philippa Tolley. It was first broadcast in October 2005.